Welcome to another episode of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast series. My name is Bedros Dermatosian, and our guest today is Professor Vahram Shemesian, uh, who is the author of the of his of the latest book, The Armenians of Musada: From Obscurity to Genocide, Resistance, and Fame, 1840-1915. This is the twelfth volume in the Armenian series of the Press at California State University, Fresno, published by. Um, Professor Barloger Magodrichan, the general editor. Before starting the interview, I would like to present Professor Shamesian. He is the professor and director of the Armenian Studies Program at California State University, Northridge. He holds a PhD in history from the University of California, Los Angeles. His book, The Musada Armenians, Socioeconomic and Cultural History, 1919-1939 was published in 2015 by the Haigazian University Press in Beirut. He has given many lectures and organized and participated in international academic conferences. He has also published scholarly articles in peer-reviewed journals as well as book chapters on the fate of Armenian genocide survivors in the Middle East between the two world wars. He has received a number of awards for his academic endeavors dissemination of Armenian culture and community involvement. You can purchase copies of the book, The Armenians of Musada, from Abril Bookstore or the National Association for Armenian Studies and uh, Research. Uh, welcome to our podcast today, Professor Shemesian. Uh, what is the book about, The Armenians of Musada? Uh, you are considered to be the foremost expert of the Armenians of Musada. What is the book about? Uh, the book is about, first of all, good morning, uh, Professor Ermat uh, Matotsian. Um, glad to be with you again. Uh, the book is about the Armenians of Musada. Musada uh, was a mountainous community. Actually, it was a mountain. Uh, today in southwestern Turkey, overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. Previously, it was part of the uh, Ottoman province of Aleppo. And then uh, between the two world wars, it was an autonomous province uh, within Syria. And in 1939, it was ceded by France uh, to Turkey. So the Armenians existed there from time immemorial. Nobody knows uh, what the origin uh, was. Uh, nevertheless, in the 19th century, uh, they underwent uh, a number of changes uh, in various domains, uh, in uh, socioeconomic, uh, in the socioeconomic field, in uh, uh, religion, because um, uh, Protestant and Catholic missionaries made inroad into Musada, and then the church also was undergoing a, a process of reform. Uh, thanks to the uh, Armenian National Constitution of 1860-1863, uh, uh, which was the result of the Armenian Renaissance uh, in many ways. Uh, and then uh, the book talks about uh, the educational progress that the Musada Armenians uh, made, uh, because uh, at the middle of the 19th century, hardly anyone could read and write uh, and calculate taxes on paper. So we see uh, the benefits of missionary uh, involvement, yet uh, the education was also part of the uh, divisions 
that uh, the three uh, denominations or confessional groups, the Armenian Apostolic, uh, Protestant, and Catholic groups uh, made. Uh, and also uh, it talks about, the book talks about uh, the uh, revolutionary fermentations, uh, the Hinchagian Social Democrat and Hinchagian Party, why they came uh, to Musada, because there was a um, uh, uh, fight in Zeytun to the north of Musada. Uh, and then uh, the Hinchagian revolutionaries uh, began to uh, import arms and ammunition through Cyprus and Musada. And Musada became a conduit. Uh, to Zeytun, but uh, a number of Fenchagian revolutionaries stayed in Musada, and for three years uh, they tried to um, teach uh, or illuminate the Musada Armenians as to their rights, human rights, uh, as citizens of the Ottoman Empire. And then it talks about the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, which was formed in 1890, and what did they do uh, at the time? Uh, then uh, a little bit about the reform in Chagian Party, uh, an offshoot of uh, the Social Democrat in Chagian Party, uh, and so on. Uh, then uh, the book talks about, uh, in a separate chapters, uh, the 1909 massacres in Silesia. What we know uh, is, generally speaking, either the Adana massacre or the Silesian massacres, but the massacres also... Uh, took place in northwestern Syria. There were many communities in northwestern Syria. Uh, so Musada was part of that. Fortunately, Musada uh, did not sustain many casualties, uh, but several hundred of them uh, lost their lives. Those who were working in the plains for Turkish landlords, they lost their lives, but those who were the, the overwhelming majority that were still in Musada defended themselves. And uh, that uh, the uh, mobs, the ruffians or the bashibozuk, as they are called in Turkish, they could not uh, achieve their goal. And then uh, that chapter talks about the relief efforts uh, that subsequently uh, were made. And we see uh, what happened uh, to the economy, to widows and orphans. There were all kinds of projects. Uh, employment projects, settlement projects, and so on and so forth. And this led all the way to World War I. So the, the atmosphere there was that of tension, was fear, uncertainty, while on the one hand, the government uh, provided some funds, relief funds, to the area, but it was very lax in terms of establishing uh, security and safety for the Christian populations, among them, of course, the Armenians. And the uh, last chapter talks about uh, the resistance to the genocide, uh, uh, generally by Franz Werfel, published in 1933 in German, and then subsequently in English the following year, 1934, in Hebrew, 1934. The Armenian translation uh, was made a year later in 1935. Uh, in Bulgaria. It was published in Bulgaria in two volumes and so on. To date, there are uh, at least 40 translations of the 40 days of Musada, and the latest one being uh, in Latvian. Uh, the uh, wife of the uh, ambassador of Armenia to the three Baltic Republic uh, translated it, and she asked me uh, to write uh, 
uh, a short uh, historical background uh, for the whole thing. And it is uh, situated uh, in the last pages of the book, The 40 Days of Musada. Uh, and then uh, within that chapter uh, about the resistance, I also uh, have uh, devoted several pages uh, on the international reaction uh, in the world press uh, from uh, all corners of the, uh, of the world, uh, beginning with France, uh, Egypt, uh, some European countries, Great Britain, the United States, Canada, South America, Australia, you name it. It's a very interesting section that uh, we didn't know about before. And then uh, I have also included an epilogue about the fate of those Musada Armenians who declined to participate in the resistance and uh, opted for re uh, uh, deportation. And they were taken to Hama, the Syrian city of Hama, where they stayed for uh, about three years, three, three and a half years. Uh, about one third of Musada population, which was uh, about 6,000, about 2,000 opted for uh, deportation. Uh, so nobody talks about them. Uh, so I wanted to in include uh, a 15 page epilogue about them. Uh, yeah. Uh, thank you for this introduction. Uh, I'd like to this is start with the economic aspect of Musadagh, specifically 19th century. And uh, we know that the by the 19th century, Ottoman Empire became a semi periphery in the global economic system. Uh, how did the opening to the West, to the Western economy, impacted the economy of Musadagh? And what was the main product within Musadagh that, you know? The, the, of course, it was a mountainous area. These were Highlanders, and uh, they, they engage in uh, the economic sphere in areas where they could produce something. It was a mountainous area. And the main source of income for them was sericulture, uh, the cultivation of silk and related industries. Uh, I would say uh, 80 90% of the people uh, was involved in sericulture. Uh, well, uh, in the first half of the 19th century, especially in the 1830s and uh, 1840s, there was in the region, in the al or Svedia in Armenian, uh, a British retired uh, consul uh, by the name of uh, John Barker, uh, who had a summer residence in Musadagh, one of the villages, Bityas, which was my grandmother's uh, birthplace, and also in Khadarbek, another village. Uh, he had some uh, land and cottage and orchards, etc. So his presence there attracted many European tourists, uh, adventurers, uh, military people, uh, visitors, you name it. And he also of course, uh, uh, visited Europe at the time, going back to his uh, uh, Great Britain, uh, his, his country, uh, and uh, taking with him some uh, samples of fruits from Musada as well. So those visitors uh, have uh, written memoirs, uh, travel accounts. Uh, so Musada was exposed to the West, uh, in a small way, nevertheless, it was an uh, opening, uh, so to speak. He also um, introduced uh, uh, silkworm seeds uh, from Europe to improve uh, the local products. 
from especially uh, Italy. Apparently, Italy was a major uh, silk producing area alongside France. Uh, and by the way, a lot of uh, the product from the area, and not just from the area, but also from the Ottoman Empire at large, especially what is today Turkey, uh, the silk imports uh, were directed towards France, where there were factories also. So there was this international trade relations between the Ottoman Empire and some Western uh, countries. Uh, so Musada benefited uh, in that sense as well. Uh, new seeds, in, improving the quality of seed, etc. Uh, also, uh, he tried, uh, Barker tried to uh, introduce uh, some vaccination. Uh, there was an epidemic in the, 18, uh, in the 1840s. Uh, so he was successful for the first time that vaccination was introduced to the area. So when you have a healthier society and you have this uh, link, this relationship with uh, the, the West uh, and so on, uh, you see that there are small openings toward the West, and uh, there was some uh, impact on the local economy as well. And why sericulture? Is it the climatic uh, uh, system of the region? Because we know that Syria had sericulture uh, economy too, specifically uh, in, 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 in trade with uh, France, in particular France. That's right. Uh, it was very uh, advanced, uh, the Maronites and the Druze in Mount Lebanon, for instance, and they had conflicts for that. There was competition uh, between the two uh, religious groups. Uh, but the whole area extending to the north and then across uh, certain areas of the Ottoman Empire, uh, there were uh, tons of uh, mulberry trees, and you know that the mulberry leaves uh, are the only food uh, for the worms, silkworms. And also in Bursa, in northwestern Turkey, today, Turkey, uh, uh, the, uh, there was an establishment called the Sericultural Institute of Bursa. And the founder uh, of that uh, institution was uh, uh, Professor Gevortor Komyan, who was himself a, a student of Louis Pasteur, and they had introduced the uh, uh, the uh, microscope to inspect the seeds, to discard the uh, 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 not the healthy ones and to keep the healthy ones. And a number of Musada Armenians also went there uh, to study uh, for two, two or three years, um, uh, all aspects of sericulture. So that's, uh, that's an interesting aspect of Musada, Bursa relationship, and then uh, the international scene in that regard. And you have images within the book about, about graduates from the Bursa uh, in Silicon Yes, Bursa. yes. There were several of them. I can't say too many, but probably 10 to 15 students from Musada went there. And Professor Torkomian used to visit Musada periodically uh, in order to select those students and encourage them to go to Bursa. And usually those were young men whose families were relatively speaking, well-to-do, who could afford uh, tuition, who could afford lodging and food, all uh, expenses associated with a student um, going out uh, to study. Uh, so it's interesting. For instance, my grandmother received a medal because she had participated in one of the competitions in the Aleppo province. And there was the, uh, another lady. So I tried to interview 
I was lucky in the 1980s tried to interview certain individuals who were still alive and could remember certain things and who were participant observers uh, in that domain. So that's why I know a few things. Uh, unfortunately, the, the previous generation, uh, my previous generation, uh, was not concerned about these things. They didn't know any better. We're the fortunate generation because uh, we were able to attend universities and uh, got interested, uh, and the archives were open. A lot of archives probably 50 years ago were not as open as they are today, uh, as, as you may know. Uh, so I tried to save as much as I could. Uh, I visited homes. Uh, I was able to obtain originals or copies of documents related to my topic. A lot of pictures today. Uh, to date, I have uh, gathered some uh, 1,200 pictures uh, until the period of 1939, until the year 1939. Uh, and then, interestingly enough, when I was in... Uh, Geneva doing some research uh, about the San Jacob Alexandretta uh, Iskenderun. Uh, I found list of uh, eligible men uh, who could uh, cast their votes in the uh, legislative elections of the San Jacob 1938. And I found the dates of my grandfathers on both sides, uh, their birth dates. Uh, so, because the list included birth dates, denominational affiliation, uh, the village, etc., uh, etc. Et so, I found those in those archives. A certain uh, interesting uh, episodes uh, have uh, uh, visited me, or I have visited those episodes also. Yeah, coming back again to the silk industry, was it male dominated? Because you mentioned your grandmother. Uh, what was the role of women within the silk industry in Musadagh? Uh, women uh, were uh, very much involved, uh, uh, especially little girls, because uh, they, they were put uh, to work uh, on the microscopes, uh, feeding the silkworms, uh, women bringing leaves from the orchards, but not just sericulture, because uh, the second um, uh, trade or, or profession would be uh, comb making, especially ladle and comb making, wooden comb making, especially in the village of Yonoluk and some other villages. So women were very much part of the whole process because they would go to the mountain, uh, fell uh, trees or branches or wood and bring them on their back, uh, walking several kilometers uh, all the way back to the village. And they also participated in actually making the combs, although it was um, the, uh, uh, the part for men to engage in. But women not only did the house chores, raised the kids, uh, became uh, the housewives, but also participated fully, fully in the economic process, uh, agriculture, comb making, and whatnot. Uh, don't you think that the uh, uh, silkworm business is a risky one because in the, as far as I know, in the second half 19th century, there were diseases. There was a disease that struck the, the cocoons and there was, it, it had a major effect. And this is a uh, fungus called Boveria bassania, uh, bassiana, which destroys the entire silkworm body. As we know also from Syria that it had a major negative impact on the business with France. So do we see such things happening in the region of Musadagh? 
we see diseases, but uh, it was risky in the sense that it also depended on the climate, on the weather. Uh, sometimes heavy rains, uh, hail, snow destroyed uh, the leaves, the season, uh, silkworms were, uh, were dead, uh, etc. Not only silkworms, but uh, the uh, animal husbandry also suffered, uh, the agriculture suffered. So more than diseases, um, uh, the weather, uh, fluctuating weather uh, impacted uh, the uh, production of a certain year. Because from the 1860s, 70s on until 1914, uh, we see that at least, at least 24, 25% of the uh, production was destroyed. Uh, or uh, impacted negatively due to the climate, due to climate. Uh, let's jump to the political uh, impact uh, on uh, Musardar specifically. I mean, the centralization policies of the Ottoman states, in particular, the Armenian national constitution. To what extent events that took place in Istanbul had an effect on, on Musardar? Because Musardar is a mountainous area. So to what extent let's say, the uh, tensions between uh, with, with, with the church and other bodies of reform, for example, was taking place in Musada? Uh, first of all, I should say that the history of Musadar is the microcosm of the history of the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire during that period. Everything that happened to the Armenians more or less also took place in Musadar. So whatever was happening to the army, uh, to the other Armenian communities, of course, the local uh, distinctions made a difference. But overall, when you look at the larger picture, you see how Mustada was a mirror of what was going on across the Ottoman Empire as far as the Armenians were concerned. Uh, so there weren't massacres in Mustada per se, whether in, during the 1890s because of the Hinchagian uh, revolutionary episode where uh, the local... Uh, consuls, American consuls, uh, British, French, all those consuls were involved. They were trying to avert a calamity by interfering, uh, advising, uh, including the uh, Catholic missionaries in Musadar and the Protestant missionaries in Musadar or visiting Musadar. Uh, so everything impacted there. And all we know is about the Zaytun episode during the 1890s, but we don't know much about the Musada episode and the tremendous amount of documentation regarding this phase in Musada as well. So I have exposed that for the first time in, in this book. Uh, whatever happened in Istanbul did not directly impact Musada, but, but the echoes of what was happening reached Musada. And what was happening across the, let's say, the, uh, the Aleppo province or even the, uh, to which Musada belonged, and also the Adana province impacted Musada directly or indirectly. What, so, what, I, meant, what I meant was the, the Armenian national constitution and the idea of introducing now uh, lay bodies, secular bodies to decision-making process within the different churches in the Ottoman Empire, within different Armenian churches. How did that affect on Musadar, Armenian community? Of the I didn't understand the first sentence. Uh, it wasn't clear. Uh, yeah. Armenian, National, the... Armenian National Assembly or the Armenian National Constitution. Uh, yeah. The reform within the Armenian church, let's say. Yeah. How did that affect? 
Yeah, definitely it's reached Musaddaq after the 1860s. Uh, the, through the, um, through the uh, diocese or uh, prelacy of Aleppo. So Aleppo itself was undergoing certain reforms. Uh, of course, it, it was under the jurisdiction of the Catholic state of Cilicia. And then uh, the prelates or primates of uh, Aleppo um, diocese or prelacy sent priests and Vartabed or celibate priests to uh, northwestern Syria under its jurisdiction uh, in order to introduce reforms, uh, bring about change, uh, and also um, uh, make sure uh, that elections were taking place, uh, church uh, board elections were taking place. So it was a difficult task, but we see uh, how, uh, what the difficulties were, how they were resolved. Uh, there was some progress, there was some, uh, some uh, problems, serious problems, because people were illiterate, people were not educated, uh, people had not seen such things for a long period of time, regularly. So these visiting priests uh, who wanted to introduce reform, according to Armenian National Constitution of 1860-1863, uh, encountered many difficulties, but we see by the start of World War I, things uh, had changed to a certain extent. And then also the priests were not educated. So when you don't have educated priests, you can't have uh, serious reforms. Some of them, a few of them were very enlightened, very enlightened, and I've, I mentioned that. I'm, I've given two examples, but uh, overall they were uh, defined or described actually as uh, uneducated, rough, tough, uh, incapable of doing things. So we don't, when you don't have good leaders, educated, enlightened leaders, the flock uh, will also suffer accordingly. Uh, but there were efforts certainly uh, beginning in the 1860s and we see the reflection of the Armenian National Constitution uh, in Musada as well. So what role the missionaries play in this? Of course, the missionaries, the first American Protestant missionary or Protestant missionary arrived in Musaddaq in uh, the spring of 1840. And that's why uh, I have started my book uh, from uh, that year. Uh, and also the presence of uh, Jean Barker, uh, the retired British diplomat who introduced uh, uh, novelties in the area. He introduced, for instance, all kinds of uh, fruits, vegetables unknown to the area at the time. In any case, uh, so at first, of course, uh, every, everybody belonged to the Armenian Apostolic Church. Uh, there was resentment. There was some stoning uh, of uh, desecrating of homes, stoning of uh, Protestant missionaries, or actually people who, who were trying to adhere to the new uh, denomination or confession of uh, Protestantism. Uh, nevertheless, gradually, again, uh, with much difficulty, they were able to uh, implant churches in, in the area. Uh, the Catholic missionaries also encountered difficulties because up till World War I, uh, they established their mission in 1891, calling it St. Paul the Apostle Mission. Uh, they, these were Capuchin missionaries from all backgrounds, Bulgarians, French, Italians, uh, you name it. Uh, 
so uh, up till World War One, they were still uh, having in, uh, difficulty uh, in uh, trying to uh, lure, uh, let us say, uh, Armenian Apostolic to the uh, Catholic uh, denomination. Uh, but uh, in the difference between the Protestant missionaries and the Catholic missionaries was that although the Protestant missionaries uh, helped uh, the local Armenians in terms of uh, funding to a certain extent uh, the construction of churches, uh, the running of schools, but we see uh, that the Catholic missionaries were actually giving money to the people because these were poor, giving clothing, giving food, uh, free education for all, um, gifts, so and trying to uh, uh, to reduce uh, the uh, the heavy burden of the taxes that the government was imposing on them. So the financial aspect of uh, the missionary involvement uh, was quite obvious, especially among the Catholic missionaries. Not so much uh, uh, within the apostol uh, the Protestant community. In fact, the Protestant missionaries insisted. Uh, that uh, the new adherents signed an agreement saying that uh, they will obey, they will do this, they will not cuss, they will not uh, hurt each other and things like that. And all those who did not uh, follow the rules would be expelled uh, and they should pay uh, membership dues. Members. So they insisted that they sustain their own churches, whereas the Catholic, for the Catholics, there wasn't anything like that. They constantly uh, raised funds, although they were limited in scope, uh, wanted, wrote to Europe, uh, asked consuls uh, to talk to their government, to their uh, foreign ministries, to donate money to Musada in order to keep that uh, mission. So there was a, a very uh, stark difference between the two denominations in that sense. Uh, coming to revolutionary activities, why the Hunchaks chose Musadar as a, not the center, but one of the centers of its activities? Is it due to its proximity to Cyprus? Is it due to its mountainous, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, topography? Or... Of course, the uh, Avasi or uh, Tursarkisian. Uh... Uh, the revolutionary who was commissioned to go and uh, start this fight in Zeytun uh, had toured the area uh, for, for a period of time and he has to study the area and uh, he and his comrades uh, saw that Musada was a good place uh, to bring their arms to on their way to Zeytun. Uh, and also uh, it was a mountainous area. So Musada uh, is a mountain that rises up uh, immediately on the shore. So you don't have a uh, distance, you don't have an area between the sea and uh, the mountain itself. So it was easier for them to uh, download uh, their armament from Cyprus. And they could do that. It, um, Cyprus shouldn't have been that far. Uh, in fact, Cyprus could be seen from Musada on a, uh, a bright day, on a sunny day. Uh, so most probably, and uh, the, not only the Hunchakians, but also the, uh, the ARF, uh, the Dashnak revolutionaries also landed in, uh, in Cyprus. So Cyprus became a, a major conduit for 
the import of arms um, from Europe uh, to the Ottoman Empire. Uh, also was the British control at the time. It was British control, but there was also a very strong uh, Ottoman control. There was an agreement between the British government and the Ottoman government, and we see, and it is uh, very explicitly uh, written in the book, uh, uh, the, uh, the constant watch that both the British and the Ottomans had uh, in Syria, excuse me, in Cyprus with their agents, with their spies, uh, with their presence. Nevertheless, even then, they were not able to catch those uh, loads of armament uh, uh, on the boats uh, that carried them to the shores of Musadar. Prior to World War I, there was a very minor immigration of Musadaqsis to the United States, specifically Pennsylvania. Why the immigration? Is it the missionary connection? And why Pennsylvania? Well, Pennsylvania was a small part. Uh, in general terms, of course, the Armenian immigrants from the Ottoman Empire settled on the east coast of uh, the United States. Uh, the New England area, uh, New York, uh, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, etc., uh, uh, etc. Et so Pennsylvania was not uh, a special target, but as you know, Anytime an immigrant comes and he comes or she comes from a village or a neighborhood, uh, the other people coming from the same area would come and join those early immigrants. So that's how immigration uh, immigrants uh, settled down. And later it happened with the Fresno Armenians. Uh, one comes and the others follow. They correspond with one another. They... Uh, they uh, encourage each other. Uh, it becomes a spot of attraction. Uh, so uh, the Musadaqsis started coming um, because of not necessarily Protestant. In fact, there was a missionary who was opposed to Armenian immigration to the United States. But then he said that uh, this is a very bad empire. There is no law. There is no peace. There is no future. There, there are no guarantees for these people to come uh, to, to go to America. Um, in, in other words, they began, uh, began to come first to get education, not a few, one or two, one or two. And then the others, especially after the um, uh, enforcement of conscription after the 1908 revolution, whereby the Christians among them, the Armenians, could also uh, become part of the Ottoman army. Uh, otherwise, until that time, they were paying uh, military exemption taxes, which was very heavy on them. Uh, so there were several reasons, economic reasons, uh, military reasons, persecution, oppression, heavy taxation, and a few for education, but not too many for education. Let's discuss a bit about the resistance of the Musadagh Armenians to the genocide. What does this resistance, how does this resistance distinguish it from other, other resistances that took place during the genocide? What's unique about the Musadagh Armenians in resisting the genocide? Uh, first of all, uh, when the Armenians of Musadagh began to arm themselves, it wasn't uh, meant to uh, uh, have an insurrection. 
uh, in the Ottoman Empire. It was meant for self-defense because they, they were seeing what was happening in the rest of the Ottoman Empire and these revolutionaries who came, the, the revolutionary societies who came said, we, we have to uh, arm ourselves just in case another episode of the 1890s, 1909 happened. So it was not a pre-planned insurrection as advocates or subscribers to the official Turkish version uh, try to emphasize uh, and uh, try to advocate. Uh, so it was for self-defense. The uniqueness was that it was at, uh, uh, it, it created a lot of uh, problems within the Armenian society in Musada because uh, they didn't know what to do exactly. They didn't have enough arms on 500, 600 guns. Uh, most of them hunting guns, uh, a few other revolvers and martini rifles. Uh, they didn't know how long the war would last. So they took a very high risk uh, in order to defend themselves. Uh, and uh, they also relied on the sea. Uh, that was a difference between Mutsatar and other places uh, like, uh, let's say, uh, Urfa or Shabinkara uh, Isar. Uh, or even Van, although it was uh, by the lake of Van. But the sea constituted a, a conduit uh, for uh, salvation, for uh, liberation, for escape, uh, because they knew that uh, Allied forces, Allied Marine, uh, were crisscrossing uh, the area in order to monitor the Syrian and the Syrian coast. So uh, that was their main hope that they could be delivered eventually. So this was a unique episode. Uh, the more I think about it, uh, uh, the more it becomes unbelievable as to how they relied on the sea and took a chance and eventually uh, they were rescued uh, as they had hoped for. Uh, I've included a lot of pictures in, in the book. Uh, some, uh, many of them recently found, the last several years they were found uh, in France. So it was very unique, and then uh, the uniqueness uh, also became more obvious uh, through the novel that Franz Verfeld wrote. It became an international saga. Uh, was no, it based on historical? It was based because, yes, because uh, Franz Verfeld studied the history of the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire, uh, but also the area. Every detail mattered for him. He also visited Musada. Uh, in the late 1920s, and uh, I have mentioned that in my previous book. He stayed there for four days. He used to measure the distances. He, he drew uh, the war scenes, etc., etc., and, and they, are, they are found in his archives, and especially in the manuscript of his novel. Uh, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the, the original manuscript with his handwriting uh, is found in uh, Vienna. It's found in Vienna. Uh, so the internationalization of the Musada episode through the work of Franz Verfeld also made it uh, a kind of unique episode uh, among the other uh, the uh, instances of resistance. But another aspect that I should mention uh, uh, regarding uh, the Turkish denial or those who are subscribed to the Turkish version of history is that it was, Musada was not part of a general insurrection. There was no a general insurrection. 
uh, in uh, the Ottoman Empire as far as the Armenian uh, episode of self-defense were concerned. Uh, it was unique. They didn't know what was happening, let's say, in Van. They didn't know what was happening or what was going to happen in Urfa or Stalingrad or some small pocket in Butlif province and what whatnot. So it was totally uh, detached. The Musada episode was totally detached from the other uh, episodes of resistance. So this is another answer that I would like to give to those who uh, connect all the dots saying that it was a uh, widespread uh, insurrection among the Armenians during the genocide. And what's interesting to notice is that Musada, as a as history, was one of the first one of the first uh, targets of the Turkish denialist policy when MGM wanted to do a movie. So I mean, we tend to think about Turkish denialism and pressure over certain governments or institutions or universities to remove things that they do not agree with. And here you have Musadar being one of the earliest such ventures by the Turkish government. Can you speak about, about the about the face? Uh, yeah, uh, as soon as uh, the, um, the book was published, even in German, but especially after it was translated into uh, English and published in English, both in the United States and uh, in Great Britain. By the way, I would like to open a parenthesis here and some, say something interesting. Uh, the, the title of the book, both in the original German and English and all other translations, uh, is The 40 Days of Musada, whereas the British uh, publication of 1934 carries the title of only the 40 days. It doesn't say of Musada, and to this day I don't know why. No explanation, nothing. just the 40 days. Very interesting. Um, as we speak, uh, there's a copy that is being sold on eBay, uh, the British version, but I have a copy already. In, in any case, uh, so when the, the uh, uh, book was published, first in German, of course, and then rendered into uh, English in 1934, uh, uh, the, the trade journals in in Hollywood began to talk about uh, the Four Days of Musada as a possible uh, subject for a great movie, uh, like uh, Gone with the Wind uh, and uh, such 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 uh, great movies. Uh, there was excitement, uh, and MGM bought the rights to make it into a movie. And then as soon as the uh, Turkish embassy in Washington, D.C. learned about this possible project, uh, began to exert pressure on MGM, read, uh, began to exert pressure on the State Department. They began to threaten uh, the film industry here in America, saying that your films will not be shown in Turkey. France also got involved in this and uh, they wanted to boycott uh, American movies. Uh, I don't know why, probably they were uh, having some trade agreements or, or anticipating some uh, trade agreements with Turkey. We, I, I don't know exactly why, but France is also mentioned in some of the documents as opposed uh, to, to the making of the movie. So there were threats. There were also all kinds of criticism and threats uh, about uh, the Jewish involvement in this issue because they said, the Turks said officially and unofficially through the press, Turkish press, 
that these are Jews, they don't care about America, the makers of the movie or potential movie, they don't care about uh, America, their loyalty uh, lies elsewhere, all they care about is making money. So there was a lot of uh, uh, derogatory uh, expressions uh, yeah, expressions vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Jews. So they did all kinds of things, and the State Department also, through the, uh, the the Secretary of State at the time, exerted pressure on MGM, and eventually MGM shelved the project. In later decades, they tried to res resuscitate it, uh, but they did not succeed. Finally, in 1982, an Armenian by the name of John Kurchan, who didn't know anything about movies, purchased the right. And the movie was made that year, 1982, uh, which was uh, mediocre at best, and it did not garner international uh, attention, so to speak. And uh, about a few years uh, ago, uh, 2016, uh, a movie was made, The Promise, as you may know, uh, with Kertorian's money. They spent about 90 million, 100 million dollars and the last episode of that film was on Musada, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. I was a historical consultant for that part of the movie. Uh, so it was incorporated into the larger theme of genocide rather than saying 40 days on Musada. Uh, yeah. Uh, finally, few final questions. Are there any themes you wanted to cover in this book that you didn't have the time or even any archives you wanted to visit? It wasn't, or it isn't a matter of time. Of course, such books take a long time. It took me several decades. Uh, of course, I work, I have family and so on. So you spend a lot of time on other issues. It's not just writing a book, but uh, I'm sure uh, there's a lot of material uh, in the autumn archives. So one has to sift all the archives to see what's available, I'm sure. And I mentioned this in, in my preface, saying that one needs to delve deeper into uh, the economic and social aspect of Musada, uh, and perhaps also the, uh, the political aspect. For instance, uh, land tenure, production, taxation, neighborly relations between Armenians, Turks, and Alawites, uh, who were there uh, in the area and things like that. But also, uh, most probably, there are archives on the, uh, the resistance itself because the military archives uh, are in, uh, in Ankara, the capital of Turkey, and very few people have access or can, can gain access to the area. Uh, although Ericsson uh, uh, has used uh, the archives and I have quoted him uh, in, in my book. Uh, so I have tried to bring together as many subject issues, themes, uh, sources as possible, uh, but I'm sure future historians will find uh, many new things, especially in the archives of the uh, Ottoman Empire, uh, in Turkey, of course, now. Uh, and then uh, uh, I'm sure there will be, or, or there are, uh, some information uh, in the archives of the Armenian Patriarchate of Jerusalem, especially. Uh, I know that for a fact that there are uh, documents on Musada, 
I don't know how many, but I don't know the volume that there are. I, I didn't have any access to those archives. And I know that nowadays they are being processed, they are being uh, indexed and so on and so forth. Uh, I know that for a fact. So uh, we'll see. Future historians uh, have to deal with that. I did what I could. Uh, I have 90, 95% of the information in this book is new. I've used 26 archives in six languages, I believe. 10 Armenian archives, 16 non-Armenian archives, including Ottoman archives, German archives, Austrian archives, uh, missionary archives, you, you name it. You become like a detective. Uh, one uh, one um, one simple mention in one document can lead uh, to a whole new world that you didn't know about. And even if you uh, plan uh, to uh, conduct research, uh, things will reveal themselves over time. Uh, you can't possibly have everything at the time. For instance, the way I have collected pictures from family uh, documents, family holdings, etc., uh, suddenly, 10 years later, you receive a phone call or an email saying, oh, uh, I heard that you've written a book, or my cousin said that you contacted him or her. Uh, I have some pictures, some documents. If you're interested, let me know. So uh, time also is of the essence. Uh, time will tell certain things. So you can't possibly plan and get everything at the same time. Uh, the last question, the final question, what's your next project? My next project, of course, my uh, project at the beginning for my dissertation, doctoral dissertation, was to write about uh, the last century of Armenian Musadakh, 1840 until 1939. But the enormity of source materials um, uh, forced me or compelled me to shorten uh, the date, uh, the period from 1840 until 1915. I have written a book from 1919-1939 about the socioeconomic and cultural aspect. So my next project on which I am working or I have started working is the Porsaid refugee camp. Uh, the uh, the 4,000 Armenians or 4,200 Armenians, Musada Armenians who were rescued by the French warships, uh, brought them to Porsaid, uh, where uh, a camp was established for them, uh, first temporarily or they thought temporarily but they had to stay there through the end of the war and some for four years, 1915, 1919. So I'm writing on that. And once I finish that, that will be my third book. And the fourth book, the last one will be on again, 1919, 1939, but this time uh, about the religious education and political aspects of Musadar Armenians between the two world wars, all the way to their, um, Exodus uh, from Musadar in 1939 and the establishment of the rural town of Anjar in Lebanon. Thank you very much. Uh, the, the, we interviewed today Professor Vahram Shemmesian, the author of The Armenians of Musadar From Obscurity to Genocide, Resistance and Fame, 1814-1915, published by the Armenian series of the press at the California State University. Fresno copies of the book uh, are available for purchase from Abril Bookstores, Bookstore and National Association for Armenian Studies and Research. Thank you very much, Professor Shamesian, for uh, agreeing to be interviewed. Thank you very much.